This is Why We Plan, a podcast for business owners and their advisors about how to better plan for the exit from a business. Join us each episode as we discuss different elements of exit planning, including real-life stories, challenges, and opportunities of owners and their advisors. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the next podcast of Why We Plan. I'm John Brown, the founder of BEI. And with me today is a very interesting person by the name of Spencer Hillgoss. Uh, Spencer was in the tech world in California, I believe, for a number of years. And one of his, his main function was to grow the company. And so we're going to talk today primarily about the whole process of scaling up a business. So Spencer, with that, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. And tell us a little bit about your background, what you're doing today, and then let's talk about scaling up. Yeah, thank you, John. Really excited to be here. This is a fun topic, you know, and it was one that was actually very near and dear to me uh, for a very long time. Um, I see it through a different lens now as a business owner and, you know, and CEO of my own company. But for brief background, I was in Silicon Valley tech companies for 13 years. Um, That was what I did, you know, and it was a fun journey coming out of actually growing up in a real estate and entrepreneurship household. You know, my bad, my, this isn't going to go super deep, but I don't want to TMI people. But uh, my dad was a, re- a residential real estate broker uh, for 30 years. And I worked for him as, as young as six, you know, all the way up through my teenage years. So I, I know I was being put to work, but I also got a taste uh, of what it was like to be around and, and work inside of in a very early stage uh, brokerage business. So that's very much scared me into technology companies. Um, and I ended up doing that for 13 years across five uh, fintech, so financial tech companies, starting with Intuit, which most people know from QuickBooks, TurboTax, and the rest. Um, and then eventually progressively smaller, 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 earlier stage companies. And these days I run Madison Investing. You know, it's a, you know, focused on private investments in, in real estate and beyond. But man, oh man, hiring hundreds of people, you know, deciding when to hire, who to hire, uh, scaling processes, uh, all, all, all these things that allow you to go and make smart decisions about resourcing and headcount, all that stuff. I wasn't sure how applicable those lessons would be coming out from that Silicon Valley journey when now I'm running my own company and it's a modern world. You know, we actually uh, only have myself and our CEO, who's also my wife and co-founder, Jennifer Mormoto, we are the only ones based here. We do have a very lean team that is distributed around the United States. You know, so di- different model, different vision, and a very different journey now than it was when I was uh, back in the Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, tech startup, yeah, sure. heads down, push. <laughs> so, but how did you start in that role in tech? You didn't when they hired you. They didn't say, "Okay, Spencer, help us grow the company." Or what was that? Why you were hired? You know, um, I think like most things in life, you know, I, I wish I could say there was a grand plan, John. Um, when I was out of college, I t- took a bet on, you know, going and finding a way to pay for my life, right? And, and I, I went in as a sales professional on my first job, you know, carried a quota, all that stuff, and eventually got promoted to be a manager. Um, and they took, they took a bet on me as a guy who used to play in a bunch of bands and punk rock bands growing up. That, that was quite a shift for me. Uh, so over the course of many years, though, I worked my butt off, got to the point where I was in my late 20s, uh, 
and I was leading a team that was probably, frankly, unqualified to lead. It was about, you know, scope of responsibility of about 200 people. And, wow. that, and that's, pre that's pretty hefty for a 26, 27 year old. Um, and so at the time I was pretty far over my skis. <laughs> and I, I think that that was a very educational period of time to say it in the nicest way possible, yeah. um, working hard, taking licks, you know, and also realizing when you're sitting there having a, for example, a hiring or a performance conversation with a person that is quite literally twice your age, um, you know, they've got kids, they've got responsibilities, they have a whole life's worth of journeys that they can lean on. That's when you learn. And mm -hmm. that, that, that was my earliest taste of leadership was, was quickly rising because of hard work, good timing, mentors that I listened to, even though they gave me very tough love uh, from time to time, which I cherish. And uh, flash forward, that lesson of going from 200 headcount at a big company down to earlier, earlier stage companies was really a deliberate choice. Um, it was a deliberate choice to go seek out bigger challenge where actually the learning in it, uh, would be accelerated. As funny as that might sound, I was looking for ways to get earliest possible stage companies where I could still be a, a, a contributor. And so later I would come in and the last company I was with before I ended up leaving the W2 world, um, I was specifically brought in to actually hire and scale uh, a division of, of a company. Um, and so that was that was a tough task, you know, because that usually means also you are taking over um, your inheriting staff. Mm -hmm. And inheriting staff is one of those things that I have now done, I think, three, perhaps four times coming in from the outside uh, into a company. That in and of itself, you could write a novel about. I mean, anyone that's done it, it is, you got you to win hearts and minds as best you can. And then you got to go through a big journey on talent and then hiring from there. But I was brought in um, specifically for that um, in those companies. So how did you use those lessons that you learned to start up your company? So because the company you have now is not dissimilar in many ways to our listeners' companies. They probably started the business themselves. Um, they didn't have your background of 10 or 15 years of scaling up and learning from your mistakes. But nevertheless, they are learning from their mistakes. They would like to make fewer of them. And so tell us how they, based on what you're doing, how they can approach growth mm. from maybe a, a better knowledge base because they may or may not have the experience to do that. So what would you suggest those owners do? Yeah. Oh, I wish I could say there was a quick snap of the fingers. Yeah. Turnkey option for this. I don't, I don't know of one. Three points, Spencer, that'll make a difference to everybody's life forevermore. <laughs> of course, yeah. And, and I would say that there, there's actually two P words that come to mind. Um, I would say people in process and, and, and to unpack those a bit. You got first on the people. You know, a lot of times, I mean, particularly if you go to entrepreneurship meetups, masterminds and all the rest, conferences. And, you know, I've been to my share of them, a little slower on the circuit for the last couple of years for thanks to coronavirus, but... They're, they're exhilarating, they're fun. There's a lot of enthusiasm around hiring and growth. And so for the first of those two Ps around people, specifically making sure, scope the business need first. And mm -hmm. I would say scope the needs, scope the actual, you know, not just budget, make sure you can afford the hire you're gonna go hire for, but literally sit down and write down like, 
what are the things that you need to accomplish after you've set your business goals and then go and scope that darn role? Because uh -huh. what ends up happening, and I hear about these stories every single week. I mean, I don't have necessarily the same lens that you do on the world when it comes to entrepreneurship and exits, um, I would say, John, but I absolutely hear on the earlier end of the spectrum, folks reach out. They say, can you give me some advice? Like, should I hire this person? And if I ask them, cool, well, what, what are they going to be doing? You know, and it's usually a long, very, very long-winded explanation, complex explanation, not very clear. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to is start with the work that has to get done. And then once you've done that, then work backward from that on who you want to go find and, and then begin your hiring processes. Even very capable people that I know and I've worked with on multiple uh, different projects and deals over the past three years, very big outcomes on those deals. They still will go out to, for example, um, gosh, what was it? Indeed.com. The site is fine, but you don't just want to post a job and start just reviewing hundreds of resumes. That is a quick way to burn out, get frustrated, and also not, not you'll lose a lot of time in that process. So that's number one. Start with the people, but also start with the work first before you even go take a look at hiring and then work your way backwards. It has to be mentioned, by the way, because I have a little bit of a, of a bias on this one. Um, Early entrepreneurs, you know, they tend to look at the opportunity to hire as something that's exciting inherently, because it is. People are like the most exciting part of a business to me. I've always been a big champion for that. Coaching and mentoring is, is a big focus of my career, and, and it's a passion of mine. But when it comes to going out and hiring that first person, ask yourself, are you doing it because it's the right move for the business, or are you doing it because it feels good and validating to add the headcount? <laughs> so yeah, that's, I've seen that. So in today's environment, the great resignation, as you, you described earlier, it's very difficult to find for most owners the talent that they need. Do you have any thoughts on that and on how they might approach that? Yeah, once you've established the role, the work that needs to get done, clarified some of the role, I would open, I would encourage you to open your mind, not just to W2 badged employees. There, there's a time when you absolutely should go hire that person, that full-time employee that unlocks growth. That said, you better believe with this great resignation thing that you brought up, great segue into this topic as well, John. I mean, you've got some of the most talented, experienced people in the country if not the world, uh -huh. who are actually out there and they are unlocking the possibilities of living wherever they want. Uh -huh. And as long as an employer is open-minded on that, to work remotely, to let them work remotely, get more flexible and open-minded on that, and maybe even be open as the entrepreneur, as the CEO, the founder yourself, to work remotely and adjust your practices. Sure. You know, to work with yeah. them because you, it'll be cost effective and you might even find that a person, you can get a higher caliber talent that way to mm -hmm. fill some roles. So I would say distributed models are wonderful. Vendors and contracting services don't just mean entry level. We use, um, just, just, just to kind of share a bit uh, behind the curtain for us. I mean, we decided to work with a virtual CFO. Um, you know, we have, we have a, a pretty complex set of financial stuff, uh, financial processes at our business right now, because we work in private placement, commercial real estate and beyond. And, uh, that has worked out incredibly well, um, to, to partner with a, a firm that specializes in 
uh, in CFO and virtual um, financial advisory. So that that that's a wonderful way to go about it too. It just depends on the need for the business, but look broadly and, and look nationally um, is what I would encourage. Not necessarily be a W-2 employer, might be an independent contractor or a contracted service of some kind as well. Exactly right, exactly right. Okay. Yeah, and they can still embed themselves in your team in a number of different ways, you know? And so whether it's Slack chat programs and beyond Zoom meetings, or it's very easy to connect with folks and occasionally do an, an on-site meeting even if you need to. So um, one other thing you brought up earlier, John, the other, the other P, we talked about people, talk mm -hmm. about process. It goes without saying, but I think a lot of people don't quite realize, I didn't realize until I joined one particular unicorn startup company where I was so outclassed when I first got there, John, I got there and I was like, the people here are not just smart and they're not just capable. I mean, they are frankly like gifted, like rock stars is how it felt to me. It felt very humble. I thought I was pretty hot stuff and I'm sitting next to these really incredibly achieving people. And I realized the way they define building a process and this, and this ties all the way back to how do you scale and let go of the work that is you know, not, it's not below your pay grade, but it is not the highest and best use of your time is you're able to go and let go of things when you scale a process. And this is dry, but you can record it on your screen. If you want to explain a process, mm -hmm. give it to an employee. You can write down documentation. The, the term SOP, standard operating procedure, doesn't exactly inspire people like coffee to wake up and jump out of bed in the morning. I don't think anyone wants to sit down and draft documentation that way. Um, there's ways to do that though. You can even outsource that if you want to with the partnership of a, of a contractor. So there's different ways to do that, but those two are, are key that we have found. Hiring the people, matching into the process, getting the process handed off to others who are capable of picking up and, and grabbing that torch. Because if you don't, if it's just in your head, and you have to explain it every time, then that's probably not going to unlock the new potential for you. If you find any task that you're doing three to five times a day repeatedly, and it can be put down on a process, find a way to do that. And you will find yourself getting away from that stuff and spending your minutes, your valuable time on stuff that is way, way higher value uh, for you as a business owner. So this, this that's a, I think it's a fantastic point. And I want to shift the conversation for a minute to part of the audience that's listening in, which is the advisor, the financial advisor, the lawyer, sure. the GPA, the same issues apply to those professional practices. I mean, professionals tend to not delegate. They tend to want to maintain the customer relationship and do everything for that customer. And that really inhibits the ability of that practice to grow. So your suggestions of think process, you know, scale up, hire the right people, and then use the process itself uh, to enable others to do the work well and yet be supervised by maybe the, the advisor in my example, because they're, they just need to review the process. Absolutely right. I mean, of course, you still have to, you know, inspect what you expect. You know, I try to avoid using rhyming platitudes, um, but I do think that that is absolutely the case is to clearly define what you're looking for as an outcome, that desired outcome. Even I've seen great processes. I've seen awesome people hired, but if you jump over and skip that most important step of what is the thing you want as a desired outcome, then it's actually going to be a little bit lower impact than you want. So just crystallize that, like define in a lot of specificity, you know, what, what do you want to happen by when, 
and then take extra time if you need to. And we say measure twice, cut once, measure three times. You know, you can run with that platitude all day. Just make sure you take the time on the desired outcome first. Excellent. Well, I think that's all incredibly useful. I think it's useful for owners because, again, owners tend to focus on their company. And often they, they just they don't have the breadth of experience that you received at a tender young age, really working for multiple different companies, learning probably, uh, you know, at, at the knee of, of a giant in, in the industry. That, that's invaluable. Most owners don't have that ability. They don't have that experience. So using the scaling up process to find talent, using those people and using a process then uh, to regulate, provide accountability, and be able to measure the results that are being produced. Those are the two key concepts you would suggest owners and advisors uh, adhere to. Absolutely. Very well said. Far better than I. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I wish I was as eloquent as you. Let me talk about one other topic that, again, is, is a little different from what we're talking about. And that's the... The experience I, I've seen over multiple decades working with business owners, and that's that we, and I'm a business owner, we tend to focus on our business. We put all of our energy, our talent, our capital into that company. And as a result, we're very dependent on the success of that company. Uh, and owners hopefully will exit at some point, but even while maybe they're they have a company and they have excess capital, it strikes me that they should be diversifying their wealth before they exit and certainly after they exit. And one way of doing that is through real estate. The traditional way uh, business owners acquire real estate is they buy a building and their business is in the building. Uh, and that's great and it's actually it's actually a good exit planning strategy because they can sell their business and then maintain maintain the ownership of the company on a long-term lease and they've got financial security and that often works um, most businesses though don't own their own real estate so they really uh, could take advantage it seems to me of some type of a syndication where their real estate investment might be in dozens of properties rather than staking all of their real estate investment on one particular building. And I'll give you a quick example of that. Uh, probably 20 years ago, the furniture distribution business changed radically. And, and it used to be that, let's say you carried a line of office, commercial office furniture, you know, Acme Furniture, and you were the distributor in Denver, Colorado for Acme Furniture. So you had probably a 20 or 30 or 40,000 square foot building full of this furniture on display that people would come in and inspect and they would, they would order and they would buy it. Well, that was great, except for one thing. The internet came along and did away with the need to have inventory. Right. So long-term that, that was beneficial to the owner because they didn't have to carry all the inventory. Short-term though, they had this 25,000 square foot building. This was back in 2008, 9, 10 when the economy was in the tank 
and they were stuck with this large building that suddenly had lost its value. And it mm. seems to me that's the advantage of what your business does now for, for its investors. I appreciate you bringing up that story. You know, that is such a great example of a common theme that's occurred over the past kind of 10, 10 20 years, right? Yeah. Um, and what you're talking about now, John, is it's a passion point for me, as you can imagine. You know, every day I wake up and I get to have some really select meetings with folks that are exactly what you're talking about here. We have, um, and I'll use a couple profile examples. These are real folks in our investing group. Um, so we have a third generation metal recycling company out of the Southeast owned for, you know, dad and his dad's dad, et cetera. Very financially successful. Um, and they have been active. And I, I live and breathe in the financial world of, of using the language active income, passive income all day, because that's what happens when you work in you know, real estate rentals, syndications, apartment buildings, storage facilities, et cetera. And everyone in our group has done well, you know, meaning like they are W-2 professionals or, you know, they could even be W-2 still, but the other half are entrepreneurs, such as that metal recycling family. And what they're looking for is an option and an off-ramp financially to insulate themselves a bit so that if they decide to step away from the day-to-day -day operations of that company, that they have other income coming in. And frankly, they're doing so well already. What they want to also do is get some diversification and growth. In addition to there's the whole tax topic, but we don't have to necessarily open that can of worms. It is always a fun topic, far more so than I used to realize before I got into real estate. I'll just say it that way. Um, that said, the reason why that one entrepreneur and dozens of others um, kind of see this whole private fund and syndication investing category is interesting to them is because they can't find a dividend paying stock that comes anywhere close in terms of income producing uh, investment as you do within these apartment buildings and these storage facilities and all these other asset classes. I mean, I don't know where else I can basically go and you know take my 50K, 100K, whatever the minimum could be in these types of private kind of bespoke deals. You put that in and it starts producing income and has growth on the back after a period of time. There's some tax benefits to that, I assume, as well. Oh, it's I mean, particularly for business owners, it's it's pretty remarkable because uh, you know, I find taxes exciting these days, but I am just that kind of nerd. Um, you know, we have a different in investor in our group. Again, a family business. There's literally three siblings that run this business out of the, the Northeast. And they're they're exiting that business now. Like the but it's I love hearing these updates from them because they share with me how the negotiations are going and all the buyers potentially and stuff. But they've been actually crafting this strategy to invest over the past three four years deliberately in chunks for other forms of income producing real estate investments. But every time they make those investments, they actually also produce paper losses in on their K ones tax forms every year. And that's all stuff that's just a byproduct of investing in that category. Um, you know, each year they file their with their tax CPA and, uh, and, and they are relatively shocked in a positive way with the outcome. And of course, I'm going to give my legal disclaimer here. I am not a CPA nor tax advisor. Please, no one takes this as tax advice. Um, but I can say from my own, uh, my own investing purposes as well, I mean, our, our literal family, uh, family wealth plan is baked in to our business in the sense that we also invest along the way with our own capital, but that's in parallel with helping all of these other entrepreneurs somehow build an off-ramp that allows them to say, hey, 10 years out, 
five years out, even two years out, if it's more imminent, how do they ensure that if they have a pretty remarkable gain or if they're figuring out even a more complex strategy that involves becoming some form of more active in real estate, as one example, man, that, that can really, really paint a more favorable picture because it's not about what you make, it's about what you keep, as, the, as, as that saying goes. And so anyways, I get talking about that stuff and I'll go all day, so I don't want to bore well, people. <laughs> a good time to stop you from talking all day about that. No, it's, it's all really fascinating. And I think it's, uh, it's valuable for our audience. Uh, this is not just about business planning and exit planning. It's about how you can have a successful life after you leave the business. And at the end of the day, that's why we plan. Spencer, thank you so much. Uh, you were a wealth of information. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. It's a really important topic for people out there. So I wish you and all the entrepreneurs listening all the best. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. If you'd like more information on better ways to plan for the future, please visit exitplanning.com.